Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home services marketplace. And Angie is here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. My son needed a major yard cleanup at his new home. We went straight to the Angie website and found a bunch of local, reliable, and affordable pros to handle the job, and one did pronto. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. The app and website are free to use. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host, and we are recording on Sunday, August 14th. And this particular episode will be up on the World Wide Webs on Thursday, August 18th. Again, I'm the host, but what you're here for is to listen to the star, the namesake Victor Davis Hanson, who is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College, where he's going to be in a few weeks. By the way, Victor, I had mentioned last week that you are going to be at Hillsdale, and we were going to pre-record some shows based on listener questions submitted. I probably have 100 questions that have come in from our listeners, so I want to say, A, thank you, B, stop. <laughs> no mas, no mas. We have plenty of questions for the, I don't know, we're going to record about five or six episodes. So thank you to those who did that. A lot to talk about today. And two initial subjects are going to be about the elite and how the elite, they're scared. 2022 maybe continues some sort of an ascendancy, but maybe folks are looking down and seeing a cliff. And we'll get Victor's thoughts on that right after these important messages. Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, They've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. 
Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, I am going to uh, do that thing that I do so well, and that's torment our listeners. But this is a setup for your uh, wisdom. And there's a great piece in City Journal, which, by the way, it's published by the Manhattan Institute. It is a quarterly. It is a brilliant magazine. Um, uh, Brian Anderson is the editor. Victor, you've written for it many times. I think you're even, even on the masthead, I believe, as a contributing editor. Um, I recommend it highly to our, our listeners. Uh, the Elite Panic of 2022 by Martin Gary, and the subtitle, it says, From the End of COVID Restrictions to Elon Musk's Twitter Bid to the Dobbs Ruling, Startling Developments Threaten Progressives' Grip on Power. So let me just uh, get to the very end of this particular piece. It's a very long essay, but I think uh, let me read this and, and Victor, then you t- have your share your thoughts on this general theme. Are the uh, elites, are they threatened? So here's how uh, Gary ends his piece. He's, he, 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 it's a question. Are we on the cusp then of an anti-elite cultural revolution? I still wouldn't bet on it for obscure reasons of psychology, creative minds inclined to radical politics. A culture conf directed from Tallahassee, Florida, or even Washington, D.C., won't budge that reality much. The group portrait of American culture will continue to tilt left indefinitely. But that's not the question at hand. What terrifies elites is the loss of their cultural monopoly in the face of a foretold political disaster. They fear diversity of any kind with good cause to the extent that the public enjoys a variety of choices in cultural products, elite control, will be proportionately diluted. Here's the last paragraph. Our cultural monolith, never popular, is today pounded by cross currents that undermined its solidity. Alongside the vast progressive choir, quieter voices, conservative, libertarian, religious, none of the above, uh, could soon arise, leaving our culture more fractured, more divided, and more representative of the nation as a whole. If If that were to occur, sullen elites will point to 2022's springtime of discontent and remark with typical vehemence that their panic was fully justified. Victor, is there panic in in the elite streets? I don't know if there's panic, but it's definitely about half the country has entirely rejected the premise of our elites. And by that, I mean what they do that they think makes them elite, nobody believes in anymore. We've already spent a whole show, Jack, on the FBI director, the head of the CIA. That doesn't mean anything anymore. 
when you say you're the FBI director, you think of lying to a federal investigator. If you're the head of the CIA, you think of John Brennan lying under oath. If you're a FBI investigator, you think of Peter Strzok. If you're a former head of the CIA, you think of Michael Hayden suggesting that the President of the United States might be executed for the more after the more walk. So it doesn't mean anything. When you think of elites, when you think, I'm Jeffrey Tubin. I have a Harvard law degree and I'm on CNN. I'm a 20. No, you're just a guy who pulled out his blank blank and masturbated on Zoom. Or, you know, I'm David Brooks. No, you were the guy that tried to convince America that they should vote for Barack Obama because you were impressed with his pants like crease. So they haven't done anything that would justify, I'm Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. What does that mean? That you called up your Chinese cat? So, the elites that are proclaimed elites by their behavior and their record, they're not elites. So they're in a period of disbelief because they went to the right schools. They have the right titles. They have the right letters after their name, but nobody cares. I can feel it. You know, I live out here in southwest Fresno County. There were guys pouring 12 yards of concrete. I had three or four people visit yesterday. I don't think anybody gives a damn that I'm a blank, blank senior fellow at Stanford University. Who cares? Or I'm on this show. Nobody cares. And that's new in America because, you know, I know we were an anti-aristocratic, but there's a deep suspicion of academia, the military, the deep state, and they don't get it. That they think that because they have a particular zip code or a particular amount of wealth that they deserve, therefore automatic recognition of their elite status and most people could care less and we got that on our last show about going to college so the world that i live in if i can have a guy come out like yesterday and look around the house and say entry for your office complex take out the old cement driveway uh, pad put in a new one make a sidewalk along the side and do the back. Oh, that's going to be 11 and a half yards. And I can pour the whole thing with concrete tent and have it perfect in five hours. <laughs> well, that's an elite, right? Or if I can have a guy come out and go up in the attic and say, oh my God, you've got 30 circuits and they're all bad and knob and two, and I can take the whole thing out and here's what I'll do with Romex and I'm going to burrow under your house. I'm going to burrow under your walls, like just like he's a brain surgeon. And I think a lot of it was accelerated by COVID, Jack, because all of these elites said, think, take Anthony, we, we've hit him. I mean, I don't want to pick on him, but Anthony Fauci. He's, no, I insist. I okay. Insist. Well, we went to him. You know, he told us, he didn't talk about therapeutics. He told us that these vaccinations were the end all. Joe Biden listened to that and said the thing is over by July 4th of 2021. And he had told us that you can go on a cruise when the thing broke out. And then he had told us that you might not worry about masking. Then he told us one mask, then two masks. And then there is no such thing as herd immunity or natural immunity with this spot. And then it's 60%. No, it'll take 70. No, it'll take 80. No, it'll take 90. And Paxlovid is this. And Boosters will protect you. And, you know, oh, no, there's not a chance in the world this thing was engineered at the Wuhan lab. We had our interview with 
Stephen Quay, and you could see otherwise. So when you look at him or Francis Collins or Burks or what they did to Scott Atlas and people like that or Jay Bacharia. And so you look in the medical field, you don't see that these people who's an elite elite right now is somebody that we don't know the name of. And he's in the University of Utah lab or somewhere like that. And he's on the verge of finding a vaccination that won't kill you or hurt you and will stop it cold. Or he found a therapeutic medicine that will stop. That's the type of elite right now. Or a person that today in the St. Lawrence laboratory, we learned that they had been able to ignite a fusion reaction. Somebody did that. And that is an elite. Tell me that is an elite. And there are elites, we hear them every day, that they, they save people's lives and everything. But it's not the credential elite. No, and it's not. And we don't, they, don't, they don't get any respect. I think that's why they're panicking. Yeah. You know? I mean, think about it. Sandy Berger, his name was in the lose. He was an elite. I think he went to Harvard Law School. He spent most of his life, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but he spent most of his life as a lawyer for the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. Is is documents Michael, in his socks? As I yeah recall, yeah stealing. <laughs> Barbara Boxer in the lead. She's down in Rancho Mirage after being a lobbyist for the Chinese government. As soon as right. she came out of the Senate, are the Pelosi's elites? Oh wow, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Paul Pelosi. Nancy gives big speeches on climate change, and he gets in a while they gas guzzling porch and rams it off the side of the road, drunk. No, they're not elites. And so I'm not just picking on people as the aberration, but when I look at the quality of an elite and I look at World War II, just that generation, they built the Pentagon in 16 months, 6 million square feet. Right. And they went over there with nothing on December 7th, and they won the war in four years. They built a B-29 from scratch. Those people were elites. They absolutely were. George Patton was elite. Mark Milley's not an elite. George Marshall was an elite. Lloyd Austin is no elite. Mm. So what I'm getting at is that this generation substituted performance and achievement. They substituted for that, that they lacked credentials, zip codes, degrees, who you know. Right. And that's what happens to we're like the Byzantines or the late Romans. Same thing. And uh, it's it's terrible to judge people on what their credentials say they are or what their titles say they are rather than what they actually do. That's why Donald Trump, I mean, think about it. Whatever you think about Donald Trump, in four years, he basically solved the illegal immigration product in a humane way. I mean, right. humane, 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 that people were not, you know, what they are now, being separated and raped and hit and killed coming across. A humane way. He basically shut North Korea up. China was not talking about going into Taiwan, and Putin was not talking about going into Ukraine, and we didn't do what we did in Afghanistan. We didn't have inflation. We had a boom, and the guy had no credential. Right. He had no title. His only credential was, <laughs> I can understand it, I am a got a big mouth, and I'm going to talk crudely and crassly. And by the way, I survived in the jungle of the, of the Manhattan real estate market. And if you think you can do it and take on simultaneously the unions, the mafia, 
the green social activists, the race mongers, the corrupt politicians, uh, the delays. And you think you can do all that? I doubt it. And that was what his credentials were. But he had no title. He had no experience. And yet, you know, they hated him. Right. They, they can't deal with his record compared to the consummate right. person with all the credentials. And Victor, no, I don't think anyone honestly, that's maybe maybe some people honestly believe, but if you go back in time and say, well, not even back in time, current day, Ukraine, uh, China pressing on Taiwan, et cetera, this would not be happening if Donald Trump was president. And much of this, of course, stems back to a year ago this week, as you mentioned earlier, Afghanistan. I don't know if you want to say anything about, about that, but, you know, the, like them or not, and most people it's on the or not side, I don't think people would honestly say we'd be in these kind of messes no, I, uh, if I, he was still in the White House. I, I just got back in early June from Israel and I talked to people across the political spectrum in politics and the military, the Israeli military. And they ne not necessarily thought Donald Trump was a suave, sophisticated student of the Middle East. But they all said that what is happening in the United States and the ripples that are rippling, the ripples and the consequences in the Middle East would not be happening right now if Donald Trump was president. We wouldn't have an ascendant Iran or we wouldn't have Hamas or Islamic Jihad convinced that the future is with them. Or we would have the Abrams Accords accelerated, or but they not now, and so and they are not invested in Donald Trump. There could be no more person antithetical to what their vision of a successful diplomat is, because that's the society and culture puts a high premium on being educated and well informed, and they feel probably that Donald Trump wasn't, but they feel that he had a cunning, an innate cunning that was unmatched, and so. Yeah, he's a good example. This is what David Halbertson wrote about in The Best and the Brightest about the Vietnam generation. They all came out of the wonkish 19, early 60s and right. corporate, uh, sci a science of corporate governance and technology. And they were going to go in there in Vietnam and manage it like they did General Motors or something. <laughs> and they did do it, didn't they, ironically, like they did right. General Motors. but. I thought we were over that, and, but now it's, it's, I don't know. That's a great. That is the great bias of of uh, business school. That that this mindset and metrics can be applicable to any and all situations, and that it, they're not. That's why the head, you know, the head of one airline is then moves over and becomes the head of a car company. Like why, you know. Uh, I don't think these things are applicable to uh, all kinds of situations. Uh, we see this a lot in philanthropy. You know, I'm in the philanthropy field, and people people just think many people think metrics, metrics, metrics. But it's um, well, it's, look at the great fortunes. I mean, Sam Walton didn't have an MBA, right? Bill Gates didn't have a BA. Mark Zuckerberg didn't have a BA. And so I, there's no correlation I see between success and training to be successful in the science of corporate success, maybe mid-level mid -level management, but uh, actual yeah. brilliance of analyzing the situation and, and having a product and 
you know, the Jeff Bezos type brilliance. I'm not a big fan of these guys, but I, I do give them their due. Yeah. And the same thing I mentioned before in my field, when I look back at the shocking developments that radicalize classics and change the entire paradigm, Heinrich Schliemann basically gave us an archaeological foundation for the Homeric poems. The guy was a banker or Michael mm. Ventris who said, no, 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 no. The Greeks did not come in the Dark Ages. Those Mycenaean Greeks, they were Greeks. <laughs> the Mycenaeans who lived in Greece did not have a Near Eastern language. They're not Minoans, Linear A. They, they were Greek, and I just proved it. I deciphered Linear B. He was an architect. And, you know, Milman Perry was kind of a renegade. He did go to the universities, but he was, you know, proved that the Homeric corpus was orally transmitted and delivered. And so these were not... That's what happens in all these fields, that people who are eccentric and outspoken tend to be liberated by the ostracism they encounter within the field. Right. And often, not all, but often that entails their credential. And we can really see it in the uh, this science when you look at, there's been some courageous Ivy League doctors, but when you look at the people who are questioning federal health policy, or they're engaged in, in really dynamic research. They're not always from where you think they should be. The CDC or the, the right. NIH or the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. So that was always America's great strength. The, you know, the Wright brothers or Alexander Graham Bell or Thomas Edison, these weirdos that just accumulated expertise and knowledge through sheer brilliance and hard work, but they were not part of an institutionalized corporate culture or academic culture. Well, I'll, I'll include you in the weirdos, uh, Victor. In that well, I'm weird, but I, I don't have any expertise. No, no, but I'll, I've told you this before. So I, I really do think in 2016, back when, you know, we were I was publishing national review and you were writing that you really were the, uh, the premier political analyst in in America, and and uh, you know what was your education in classics, uh, or or your role, your your livelihood as a farmer? I was just empirical. Every time I talk to somebody that I thought would hate Donald Trump, they look around and say, "I'm going to vote for him." I could not believe it, and I said, "That guy's going to win." And but I, I you know. I gave suggestions at National Review not to pick on them. And the, we, oh, no, no, I no, yeah, I, 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 I wasn't listened to when I said the never Trump issue. I suggested we have a never Trump issue and a, and a not never Trump. So you have two sides of the equation. And yeah, I suggested that after the Access Hollywood ten years old tape that was deliberately that that was not going to torpedo, but rather energize Donald Trump. Yeah. On the other hand, I said other things that. Were, that will criticize. I said, Donald Trump lost the first, the first debate. He got terrible advice to go and scream and yell from Chris Christie and those people. And then Chris Christie went right back out after advising him to be combative and rude rather than to negotiate a longer debate and to be polite and let Joe Biden self-destruct. He went on TV and attacked the person he yeah. coached. Yeah. He's, I, I can't stand that guy. Speaking of people I can't stand, uh, Nancy Pelosi, but uh, Victor, let's talk about her and let's continue to talk about Trump because you've written some uh, a uh, piece on your website, one of the one of the privileged pieces about uh, 
the upcoming, well, 2024, 20, the upcoming presidential elections. And let's get your thoughts on on that. And maybe on you've also written about Nancy Pelosi's uh, childlike diplomacy, um, <laughs> a great piece for American greatness. So let's let's get to those right after these important messages. <laughs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show again. I'm Jack Fowler. We are recording on Sunday, August 14th. Victor writes for American Greatness, uh, for uh, the new Criterion. He has a syndicated column, but he does write in other places. But he also writes three or four times a week now for his own website, victorhanson.com. Now you go to that website, there's, it's um, you can find links to Victor's appearances on TV and other podcasts he does, etc. But you'll find you'll click on links and you won't be able to access them. They're the, the ultra articles. These are the exclusive pieces or the pieces Victor writes exclusively for his website. Subscribe five dollars. Test it out five dollars. VictorHanson.com. You're going to love it. You're going to wish you had done it sooner. It's fifty dollars a year. So get that done. You know, you want to do it. Stop, stop delaying. Jack Fowler, me, I am the author of Civil Thoughts, a free, free weekly email newsletter published by the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic. I encourage you to subscribe. We don't rent the list. It's, it's, it's um, a collection of worth links and, and excerpts from worthwhile articles uh, that I uh, recommend uh, you read. Uh, CivilThoughts.com, that's where you can uh, sign up. So Victor, Two of the, um, well, one of these is an ultra piece, exclusive piece. We'll, we'll lift the uh, curtain and, and give, give our listeners a peek at it, those who are not subscribing. Um, Trump, DeSantis, Biden, Harris, and all that, part two. This is a two-part series uh, that you've written for, your, for the website. And it's your kind of uh, polyglot of, of, of uh, thoughts about the 2024 uh, elections and right now, where does Donald Trump fit into all of that? So would you share some thoughts before we move on to talk about Nancy Pelosi? Well, this was written before the raid, but um, I tried to make the point that Joe Biden was selected by the African-American community, James Clyburn, in reaction to the donor class, those two constituencies knew better than anybody else that that circus that was on the debate stage in 2020 was not viable. 
that nobody in their right mind was going to vote for Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Beto, Spartacus, etc. They just weren't going to vote for them. And they were in a dilemma because the only alternative was someone who was 75 years old and non compos mentes. So they figured that, you know, they ran the basement campaign, they got him over the, but the devil's bargain, the Faustian bargain was that he had to carry a stealth, hardcore, left-wing, progressive, socialist agenda while telling the country that he was just good old Joe Biden from Scranton. And that worked perfectly. And then what happened was, as any Faustian bargain, the contradictions were manifest within weeks of after his inauguration. One is the agenda was not what the independents voted for. It was a hard left AOC squad agenda, Sanders. And then two, the guy really was cognitively challenged. Okay, so now we fast forward. He's not going to be a candidate for president. And none of those people that were on the stage in 2020 are going to be a candidate. And that affects the Republicans. Because when they say Donald Trump can't win again, against whom? <laughs> Barack, another Barack Obama? Maybe not. Another Joe Biden, even if they try it twice and have that bargain again, maybe not. But there's no, not going to be a Joe Biden. And there's no one that ha can have a pretense of being a known commodity that's sane. Not that Joe Biden's sane, but the appearance of sanity. So that screws everything up because the chief characteristic of everybody who opposes Trump was he can't win in the general election. And he did lose the popular vote in 2016. I think he probably lost it in 2020 as well. And I think the vote is recorded. I think he lost. That's a whole other question, but I think it had something to do with the 62% of non-election day balloting. But that's neither here nor there. But my point is in 2000. 24, he's not going to be running against Hillary Clinton, and he's not going to be running against Joe Biden. They've, that generation is gone. So you tell me who's out there who's not nuts and doesn't appear as nuts. Yeah. And so a lot of the candidates like DeSantis, that's going to be in Pompeo and Haley and Cotton and all of them. It's going to be a little bit more difficult because Biden is not going to be on the ticket. And I think the impression will be that any of us can beat, including Donald Trump, the Democratic nominee, whereas before it was, we don't tweet, we're not eccentric, we don't make fun of people, therefore we can beat Joe Biden from Scranton in a way that Donald Trump failed to do. I don't think that's going to be applicable. I don't know what that means. I don't think he should declare his nomination before the midterms. Mm -hmm. He'll distract attention from them and then... You know, if they do very well, and I think they will, he'll claim credit for it, and that will disparage the candidates themselves in some ways. And if he, if they don't do as well, they'll blame him. So he should just wait until it's all over. I know you've written about Gavin Newsom and his Florida electioneering and and coming out of kind of the woodwork for twenty twenty four. Is there anyone you think of though that uh, I don't know? I'm just riffing here myself, but. Uh, you know, no, Mich Michelle Obama. She's the, only, she's the only one. And really? people were introduced to Michelle Obama. I mean, everybody loves Michelle. That that was a packaging attempt. Yeah. 
after well i mean <laughs> go ahead she had a lot of high negatives in that campaign yeah. of 2008 when she said she'd never been proud until barack ran to be an american right and then she said it was a downright mean country mm -hmm. and she was headed for political albatross status and then david axelrod said shut the blank up and remember they put her on ice and all of a sudden she started talking about peaches and cream and they, she got in there and then she went right back out oh i was at a store and somebody asked me to reach up and that was racist all this stuff came out and then they said stop it stop it stop it and they rebuilt her but she's a loose cannon so but she's better than the alternatives as far as they're concerned the late rush limbaugh used to always say that about michelle there'll be kind when she runs for office yeah and that was not a form of flattery or compliment that wasn't a compliment it's that it was this is what we're going to be reduced to and so we'll see but okay. she said a lot of crazy things since she's left office and it's not going to be michelle obama who works hard and they always raise the remember that they raise the bar we want to get braces they raise the bar we want to get a mortgage they raise the bar this is michelle obama is hmm rock should we go to the eight million dollar caloroma mansion or the 14 right. million dollar martha's vineyard seaside estate that's immune from global global warming rising tides seas or should we go to the new 20 million dollar oahu uh, beachside Hawaiian mansion. Let's take your pick. That's who she is now. Yeah, they were truly even before it, it, being elected president with with her contrived foundation position and and his uh, yeah. And the thing no about the Obamas, jobs, what, they were they were the one percent of the one percent. You know? The thing about but, Obamas were they always gave the game away. They always say what they were not what they would press they were not was always confirmation of what they were when barack obama said well if i'm going to run for president i'm going to do it on principled grounds i'm just not going to go do it you know just for the title and make a lot of money that's what we knew he was going to do because he was no revolutionary community the guy was a grifter he got in there and the last year of his administration he took a vacation he let hillary Mm -hmm. and and trump fight it out and he knew that the more you did not see or hear him the more you were you liked the idea that he was the first black president right. and his polls went from about 41 percent up to 54 percent very and he just cut deals with netflix and everything while he was in office for his retirement and the guy's worth 100 million dollars now and he was always that way tony resco all of that stuff right he, that was a stupid thing i did oh yeah it was also illegal probably but <laughs> forget it and that's the way he was he was always a guy who was pretentious and he was status hungry and he wanted money and he wanted nice things and that's and then he understood something very brilliantly that he was he was able according to harry reed and Joe Biden, who both said racist things about him, of his speech and diction. Right, right. But it's not racist to say that he was a, ma a mimic and he could turn on an authentic uh, South Central, right. yeah, Southern right. inflected black accent right. for his fee days, or he could sound like a wonk to Knob Hill supporters. 
or he could be the angry black guy when he had rappers in the White House whose le- you know leg break ankle bracelet went off an alarm, right. or he could go in and reassure some multi-million dollar person he was not going to you know do something crazy and you know right. confiscate money. So that's what he was, and he could do it all with the idea that you owe me something because I'm a victim of racism, even though he was completely outside exempt unfamiliar with the american continental american black experience he was son of a a truly african person and he grew up in a upper middle class household run by a very courageous hard-working grandmother who was a made it to bank president and put him in prep school forget about his crazy mom but it wasn't necessarily a deprived childhood of the sort that we think and he went to occidental he went to Columbia, Harvard you, Law School. Did and you ever? Did you it know characterize? It was all characterized by mediocre academic achievement. I was going to ask. Did you know anyone who ever taught him? Yes, I I've met people who knew him and were a colleague of his. I won't mention their name. Two of oh, them. Okay. And they had the same appraisal. Okay. Their appraisal was exactly what Obama appraised him. They said to him on was it CBS, Leslie Stahl, or whoever was it? They said, "What's your greatest?" weakness what's your greatest criticism and he said i'm lazy hmm. he said that yeah. not that wasn't a racist comment by somebody stereotyping that was what he said and what he meant by that he didn't mean to be critical he meant to be uh, yeah. adulatory that i'm so gifted and right and he's lazy like bill clinton is lazy bill clinton had a photographic memory but he just winged it and he knew that he could charm people and be glib but right. as far as deep thinking, he didn't know anything. Either did Obama. Yeah. Well, well, Victor, um, let's talk about Nancy Pelosi now. And you have a very interesting piece you wrote for American Greatness. It's a it's a, a over a week old at this time, but but still, I thought it it's worth talking about. It's Nancy it's Nancy Pelosi's childlike diplomacy mirrors America's childlike posture towards China. Now, we've been over uh, Pelosi's uh, visit and the consequences of it and the back and forth and the pitfalls, et cetera. But if you don't mind, I'm more interested, and I think maybe our, our listeners might be, in the second part of that title about America's childlike posture toward China. Would you, what's, what's childlike about, about it? And it, Why did and she go to chi- China? It, well, Why let me she- just ask, is it just now or is this like, is this uh, attitude we have toward China historic? Okay. Well, we made we cut a deal in '72 in different circumstances. The the deal was that Richard Nixon wanted to get out of Vietnam, and he wanted to either get the Soviet Union or the China to stop supplying the Viet Cong dash North Vietnamese, and barring that, and he sent Kissinger in preliminary talks to create this doctrine that neither China or Russia would be better friends with each other than each one would be to us. And it was called cynically triangulation. That's where it came. And so the price of that policy was Nixon told Mao that privately and domestically, we were going to praise Taiwan as a free independent contrast to mainland China. But formally, 
in diplomatic terms, we were not going to recognize it. We would only recognize communist China. And the landscape of that was that China was weak. It was coming out of Mao's cultural revolution in 72. No one in their right mind at the time thought 50 years later that an American aircraft carrier would be blown out of the water in the first five minutes of a war in the South China Sea, or they would openly talk about taking Taiwan and could do it, perhaps, or they would have nuclear missiles pointed at the west coast of the United States, or that it would be stealing patents and copyrights and dumping product for monopoly purposes of market shares and fixing currency and sending 380,000 students over here, which probably three or four or 5,000 of more active espionage agents. Nobody ever thought that 50 years later. Well, that's where we were. And so that policy is archaic. It's ossified because this is an existential enemy of ours, China. Taiwan is an ally. And what we're trying to do is to get Australia and Japan and South Korea and Taiwan and the Philippines and maybe Indonesia and Southeast Asian countries all in a alliance to curb and check Chinese aggression. And they don't have to do much because they can't stand the Chinese. Okay. But what you don't do is you do that, but you don't then just flagrantly when you're weak and we're weak right now because the economy is weak and our military is shattered and lost deterrence after Afghanistan and Ukraine, all this stuff. And what we've talked about with recruitment problems and wokeness. But what you don't do is you don't flagrantly just say, I'm going to go over there, even though it violates the spirit. And you have no idea why you're going over there. And you're not, you're going to talk loud and you're in ignoramus. And why I mean, I mean, ignoramus. So when you ask, why did you go over there? Well, when I was a little girl, I would dig in the beach and my parents said, I guess you're on your way to China. Ha ha ha. Could you elaborate the next couple of days? Okay. Uh, well, mainland China is one of the freest societies in the world. Remember that Mike Bloomberg said that, that they had a con con constitutional constituency. So she didn't know why she went over there. She didn't help herself. I have no problem with challenging that one China policy if that is a deliberate attempt and you talk to the president and the secretary of defense and you get everybody in that bipartisan committee uh, community online. She didn't do any of that. She didn't. She just freelance and no sooner had she announced it. And it was sort of a Napoleon general said, I'll take Vienna, but maybe it's too difficult. Maybe I'll just hold back for a while. Or maybe I'll do it next. If you're going to take Vienna, take Vienna. So if you're going to go, Nancy, you say, I'm going no matter what. And then Lloyd Austin says, she's the Speaker of the House. She has a perfect right to go. And the president says, that's what she wants to do. We're behind her. Instead, it was like leaking. Hey, she's just nutty. She's freelancing. So it was a disaster. It didn't bring anything except her little ego that she went back and said, people cheered me in China. You know, I love communist China. You know, it's the freest country and I dig in the sand. It was a joke. It was childlike. You also wrote she uses foreign, she has a history she of using has. foreign policy, uh, foreign visits to embar embarrass people politically, Americans politically. Yeah, I can remember that when she did it, she had that famous phrase about Bashar Assad. Oh, peace runs through Damascus, i.e., 
we're stuck in the surge and I'm going to go over to Syria and we've won the midterms. And now for the first time in life, I'm the speaker of the house and we've got a big presidential campaign and I'm going to embarrass George W. Bush and trash the surge, which worked. So I'm going to go over to Syria, even though they begged her not to go. And I'm going to praise the Assad dynasty. And you know what way I'm going to do that? They're sending thousands of people across the open Syrian-Iraq border to kill Americans. And they just fought a war with our Israeli allies in Lebanon. And she went over there and did that. And I can remember her right after 9-11, where she was in the news, that she was going and talking. I don't know if it was John Brennan or who it was in the Bush administration. And she was making these little bipartisan, oh, We've got to do whatever it takes. And they were they were briefed fully on so-called enhanced interrogation. Fully. She never objected to one item of that type of protocol. She knew all about Guantanamo. She and then as soon as the crap hit the fan and the left started to dominate the Democratic Party again, and we got in trouble, Afghanistan kind of slowed down. And then she, oh, this is torture war criminal. So I've never had any respect for her. I never have. And I'm not just saying that in personal terms. And then that's well aside from the fact that she and her husband, when she left the local Democratic Party 30 years ago, they were broke. They had not. I mean, she came from a political family and he had little money, but they they were not worth a hundred million dollars. That was predicated on what we just saw two weeks ago. Things like that, where he gets a little cent of upcoming legislation that will spike a stock or make it go down a few points. And then he right. buys in mass, sometimes futures. And the way that Dianne Feinstein's uh, husband was a big, big Chinese investor, a billion dollars. They all are that way. And Barbara Boxer, you know, at one time I thought, my God, we've got Barbara Boxer. She retires. She's a Chinese registered agent, I think, Amazing. and lobbyist. And then we've got Diane Feinstein, whose husband made a killing, and she's got a chauffeur when she was head of the Senate Intelligence Agency, who's a certified Chinese spy, which I guess nobody really worried about. And then we've got this other Northern California ignoramus congressman, Swalwell, who is having sexual relations with, is it Fang Fang, Fang Fang, Fang you Fang? Know, you knew her, right? I knew her. I met her. <laughs> yes, I did. She came to my office and I heard her on the phone say, you know, I'm a uh, diplomatic person from the consulate. You've been writing things that are untrue. I want to go talk to you. And she said, could I visit you? And I said, no, but I'm on campus. I can come out. And I said, okay, but I was not stupid. I had the door open on my assistant there listening to the whole thing, and I refused all of her gifts. I'm not as handsome or young as Eric Swalwell, but I could see right away that she was a very, very sophisticated actor of things that were not interest to my country. And I got, you know, that was it. I just got in a big argument, and then she broke into her Valley Girl's slang and dropped her little innocent persona and started arguing with me about Taiwan. And we got a heated argument about that. And that was it. No dinner. I didn't want to go to her dinner invitation. I didn't accept her gift. But my point is that guy who is was sitting on the House Intelligence Committee, apparently he hasn't denied it. The right. accusation he had carnal relations with her. 
Right. That was another Northern Californian. And then, you know, you go to Nancy Pelosi and she's got her son was with her investments. And so he's a big investor with Chinese interest. And so is her husband has investments in China. And so these are all left wing politicians of the people. And they all have a couple things in common. They're fabulously wealthy, and a lot of their wealth was predicated on their politics. Right. And eventually selling the rope to hang America with. Victor, one last thing about this piece. Um, Could you give us a a quick analysis of whether it's good or bad, or if it's just a term that really we shouldn't obsess about? Strategic ambiguity as America's policy towards red China. Good, bad, should we be concerned? Does it, is it meaningless now? What, get, talk about that term, please. Well, the thing to remember about that term is that it was created or it was came into currency at a different, as I said, at a different economic, cultural, political, social, and military landscape. And it was one that was sort of condescending. Well, you know, we'll just tell everybody that were, you know, that there's there's one communist China and that'll make Mao happy and we can have good relationships and then we will acculturate and guide them into the world community and they're going to be kind of like a big Taiwan. That's what they really believe. I don't know if Nixon believed that, but Jimmy Carter, who expanded on it, and Bill Clinton, who really expanded on it, and there were people in the Reagan administration that did too. They really did believe that Tiananmen Square was going to lead to a Chinese version of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And if not then, then the massive amounts of American cash and investment and the opening up tariff-free markets, the Chinese would make them so westernized and so many students here, and they'd be so wealthy that they would just, anybody who comes over here loves the United States and wants to be like it. They never in their right mind thought these are hardcore commies, communist (laughs) commies, same thing. But they're coming over here for one reason, to take every single thing they can from us and to leapfrog and leapfrog over decades, if not centuries of research and development and step slow steps to a modern, sophisticated, technologically adept society. And that's what they did, all under the auspices of a ruthless, murderous regime that hasn't changed much except in magnitude and it's killing from Mao Zedong. And that's what it was. And that's where it ended up. And we appeased them and we did everything. And now this policy is ossified. The problem was that after the Cold War, we we blew it. We didn't make necessary reforms. They were We could have uh, paid off our debts. And I blame Republicans, too, for that. Right, right. George Bush doubled the debt and Donald Trump doubled, almost doubled the debt in four years. Not doubled, but he ran a, a huge deficits and we should have been investing and get our financial house in order we should have meritocratic universities and looking back uh 9-11 it really affected me and i thought we had to deal with the afghan problem and we did and iraq but i never in my right mind thought we were going to go in there and try to put a george floyd 
mural on a street right. or, or fly the pride flag or when i went over to iraq twice i couldn't believe we were building more sophisticated electrical grids than we had in the united states yeah. so somewhere something went wrong but my point is that we're weak now and china is growing strong and so you have a policy that reflects that was birthed in the idea of America is strong and they are weak. The policy hasn't changed, but they're getting stronger and we're getting weaker. Right. We're still stronger than China. But so the policy now is ambiguous, really. And it's right. If anybody but, in America, Donald Trump said it. I think he was off the record. It was a stupid thing to say, even off the record. But he said, there's no way in hell we're going to be able to go over there and save 23 million people from 1.4 billion people. You know, that's what he said. And I don't know if he was right or not, but that's our problem right now. And China knows it's our problem. And when Nancy Pelosi gives them a reason to be provocative, that's they they have a virtual, they had a de facto blockade. They shot missiles over Japan's airspace. So they're just telling people this is the reality. Right. And whether you like it or not, Taiwan is doomed. And we have to either do two, one or two things. We either have to say, okay, is there a way that we can save Taiwan diplomatically? The answer is no. Or we're going to have to get our house in order militarily. We should have had a very sophisticated missile defense system. And we, you know, Barack Obama, tell Vladimir, he'll just behave in the next election. Give me some space. It's my final election. Then I'll be flexible, including missile defense. And then he dismantles it and leaves the poles and the checks out hanging. We could have been really investing in missile defense and different types of weaponry than we have right now. I would rather have, I don't know, 500,000 armed drones than another $13 billion carrier. Carrier, right, yeah. Because I don't know how we're going to save one of those things. Yeah. And, and the, to the Chinese are concerned that they could give a blank blank that the 5,000 Americans on the Ronald Reagan are diverse or say he and him or they for their pronouns. They don't care. Yeah. They do not give a damn about the diversity, equity, inclusion, or whether the crew of the Reagan, they, after a hard day, are reading Professor Kendi's work about anti-racism. They don't yeah. care. All they see is a big, fat American target with prestige. I don't know what we do. You know, David Goldman is a very astute. Oh, I love David. Yeah. I like David. He's been very critical of me in the past, but sometimes I deserved it, I suppose. Well, no, I know him personally, so that's why I love him. But go ahead. I, I, I like him, too, because yeah. I like what he writes. Yeah. And I think he's been he, he's very strange uh, tone because what he is, is it's almost wistful. In other words, he said, it's kind of like cry the beloved country. But he doesn't pull any punches. He, he said, oh, I wish it wasn't so true. It would have been so easy to avoid this. All we had to do was invest in research and development. Right. All we had to do was strengthen our engineering and math and science. All we had to do was uh, concentrate on China and not so much the Russian threat or the Middle East threat. Uh, all we had to do was not punish the Chinese with tariffs, would make it so that we didn't couldn't be hurt with tariffs or no tariffs, that we were so much stronger. And he's kind of sad that we didn't do that. And so right. when he tells, but he's very pessimistic and that that's hard to read sometimes, but he's, I've never read anything where I disagreed with him on China. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, too many people making 
too many people in America, uh, and maybe many I even know, are making too much money. Uh, at, China, involvement in China. You know, there's that, too much money to be made. Yeah. Look at LeBron James. It's very strange how the Chinese are, they're very, very, they have mastered the art of propaganda almost on every issue. Remember what they said about Taiwan? You know, we're not, don't treat us like we're George Floyd. We're not George right. Floyd. And they have a whole network of students and young people that hourly, every second, communicate back and forth with the regime trying to try out tropes and, and propaganda. And they understand that they understand the left is corrupt. And so they can understand that you can make leftists really, really wealthy. And I mean, yeah. with joint investments, and then you can pass that off as okay because they're marginalized people in a way the Russians can't get away with it. And they understand it. They look at American, a Hollywood film and every Hollywood action film when you want to get the foreign bad guy, he's some ball-headed guy with an orthodox tattoo on his neck, a gold tooth with a really thick Russian accent, big biceps, and he's a, you know, he's a Russian mafioso and right. not not a Chinese person. That would be yeah. taboo. That would be racist, and they know that. Yeah, and uh, so that's... they feel that they can. They're completely exempt. When I was talking to our representative of the consulate she was very clear and trying that out in our conversation that we were a racist society and this and this and japan japan was a racist society and gosh and so i don't know you know but the the black guy who was in china when covid happened found out what a racist society a lot of them did they had signs on mcdonald's you know i think it was mcdonald's black people don't come in yeah and so yeah, and so that's that. They're so much more formidable than than Russia. So what I'm getting at is this: there are two collusion narratives right now that are circulating. One has already been discredited. It was the Russian collusion hoax. In fact, it should not have been dis- the term shouldn't have been discredited because it applied perfectly to Hillary Clinton. She d- really did hire people to collect dirt on Donald Trump with the aid of the Russian government that were feeding them those lies, the PPT, all that, that came from the Russian government. But never mind, it was a bankrupt narrative about a declining power. But at the same time, there was a narrative that Hunter Biden, for example, when he went to China on Air Force Two, when you had major family members of prominent senators, when you had somebody like Mike Bloomberg running for the Democratic nomination who had, what, $10, $15 billion invested in Chinese startups when you had Bill Gates and the height of the COVID saying that China had handled this very well, when you had Peter Daszak and Echo Health who were, and Lancet, I think, who was a recipient of Chinese money, people had suggested, were saying that there was no gain-of-function research at the Chinese lab. My point is that there was a collusion with the Chinese with a left wing culturally and politically that were mouthing Chinese platitudes. And that was true. And it's much more dangerous. And it happens to be true than something that was not as dangerous and happened to be false. And you can't stop it. Not when LeBron, think about it. LeBron James can say that he's a victim of American racism. Oh my gosh. And then he can go over there and he'll have a billion dollars with the lifetime of that contract with with a Chinese endorsement. 
And that's a that is a nation that does not like black people at, right. collectively and does not like people who are religious, such as the Wagers or they're Muslims or they're considered uh, inferior race. And yet he will, when that happens, you can see how insidious they are. You know, but uh, I just, we ran out of time, Victor, and I just have to mention uh, uh, hate, Red China hates religious people. Cardinal Joseph Zen, the retired uh, Catholic uh, Cardinal of Hong Kong, is going to be prosecuted uh, next month in open court uh, over the uh, Hong Kong, uh, I would say, protests from two or three years ago. And it's kind of... Uh, <laughs> what will be the official response of the Biden administration? Well, not, I don't know that. The other concern is what's the official response of, of the Vatican, which has been kissing the, uh, you know, China's hiney. And uh, this good man, he's a good, great man, actually, has been protesting the the uh, diplomatic relations with uh, with the Vatican, but anyway, it's a, it echoes back to what happened with Cardinal Menzenti and uh, the, the great figure of Hungary in the late nineteen forties. Uh, communism hates religion, and they will they will on occasion take on the big <laughs> the big guy, and Zen is a big guy to to prove a point. Uh, Victor, before we end, just a quick question. Did you know ever have any uh, come into contact with Salman Rushdie, who is, as we were recording, you know, he was just uh, stabbed violently. I believe he's in and out of intensive care. But have you ever crossed paths? No, I never. I never met him. I think when that ostracism <laughs> began, I supported him. I wrote a column about it. Um, I knew okay. Christopher. I knew Christopher Hitchens really well, who, along with Susan Sontag, was pretty prominent in defending him right but uh there was a lot of people on the right to tell you the truth that i had disagreements with that felt that he was uh, impious and that his defamation of it's not the good word but his right. irreligious yeah and blasphemous attitude toward islam was transferable to christianity as well Right. And people like that then get what they deserve. I won't mention the publication I read that in, but there were prominent conservatives who believe that. And so did leftists for a different reason, that they felt that, you know, anything that's Islamic is good and anything that's Western is bad. And he was a Westernized person who got what he deserved. But writers that I, I, I'm ideologically not in tune with what he writes or what he says, but I, I think he was a good writer. And I think that people downplayed the threats that he was under and he, they ruined his life for, I think it was nine years. He had to live in Cognito. Right. Just right. He, everybody should have the right to express whatever they feel like if they want. The problem with all these things, Jack, is that people like him that are persecuted or they're victims of efforts to squash free expression. They all think that their natural allies are the democratic party or the left. It never has been that way in, in terms of the hard left, but it was true in the Democratic Party under the ACLU, etc., where they went to great lengths almost to allow pornography to be openly mm -hmm. and, you know, a free speech area or Mario Salvador. That doesn't exist anymore. Not at all. So multiculturalism and wokeness have overtaken free speech. There is no free speech on campus. 
And if a, if a professor, you know, goes on campus, Amy Wax or somebody or Heather McDonald, they're going to be in danger. And oh, nobody's, yeah. nobody's going to defend them. Nobody's going to defend them. Well, there is a, a, actually, Victor, I, I just. But I mean, on the campus itself, physically get up there and defend them or a dean or a provost. Oh, sure. Yeah, right. No, they're gonna, there's going to be great college fix and all those groups. Yeah, they're great. Right. And fire, they're they're wonderful. But I'm just saying, within the university community, the left wing community, they're either going to be too scared or they're going to think they got what they deserve. Right. So that's new, and right. there is no ACLU now. It's yeah, not the Americans. Right. It's just a, an an arm of the socialist left. Yeah. And so a guy like Rushdie, when this happens, you would think there would be a whole outpouring like there was 30 years ago from left wing writers, and I just don't think it's going to happen. Because they don't believe in free speech and expression. I don't think you'll see a thing from the squad. I think AOC won't see a thing or Elon oh Omar. Yeah. No, they don't care. And, you know, it's just, it's, you know, it, I just like to finish on a pessimistic note that yeah. we don't know we are. <laughs> because we're in the middle of it, the level of decline. And I'm talking about moral decline. I'm talking about intellectual decline. I'm talking about material decline. It's not just our military or our air travel or the homeless in our cities or the crime that's coming back. It's it's things like the protection of free speech and expression, the integrity of the FBI or the CIA or the DOJ. Because to sum it up very quickly, these are all government institutions or cultural institutions that are liberal. And not that the conservatives are not capable of prompting these types of decline, but they're constantly under scrutiny. Donald Trump was under a microscope mm -hmm. from a left-wing press, a left-wing internet, a left-wing universities, etc. But when you're on the left and there is no scrutiny because the left is the left, they're fused, then they get away with anything. And they just keep doing things that are that wouldn't have been possible if you had a, a an independent arbiter like there used to be. There were people, whether we like it or not, in in the not 80s and 70s and 60s on the left, I mean, they ran CBS News, they ran NBC, they ran all the institutions, but they were not like they are today. I wasn't a big fan of, you know, like David Brinkley, but compared to the people at CNN, he was a, a moral paragon. You know, he I mean? was. Yeah, actually, I think towards the end also he he Mike he, he was on a hot mic one once and he really stuck it to Bill Clinton. I forget what he's. I got to look that up. Yeah, a guy point. like Eric Severide was an old lefty, but a guy was he could he was very analytical. Yeah, and so those people don't exist in the Democratic Party. There is no Harry Truman. There is no JFK. There's not even a Bill Clinton. Right, and so right now a lot of things that are really deleterious to the country are taking. They're taking root, and mm -hmm. nobody says anything. I mean, I I thought Tipper Gore was kind of saying, you know, we shouldn't have this type of music where you talk about raping and killing and beating up women, you know. And all of a sudden, you know, that was yeah, Victor. You couldn't you couldn't do that today. No, you, you couldn't do that. You couldn't uh, say that. You wouldn't dare say that rap music should not use the N word and contributes to racism and should not ever talk about kill the police, pop, pop, right. popo, the way that uh, Kendrick Lamar did in one of his uh, 
to pimp a butterfly albums when he was mm-hmm. a guest uh, with Barack Obama who idolized him. And yet he right. had a lyric in there about killing police people. So that type of decline is not questioned. And, and it, I was see, sure, we're in a commiss- commissars. Everything yeah. is ideological now. I was with some family members, my wife's family, uh, this past weekend, and uh, I don't think anyone doesn't believe that this November there will be a a smashing election. But at the same time, there is this despondency. So, you know, we may win whoever the we are. You know, we will win, but for what? Because it may be too far. I I think everybody listening, I'm not, this is not a political podcast in the sense of I'm not a registered Republican, but you should vote and you should get everybody you know to vote and if each according to their station should give the political candidates of your choice if you feel they're traditionalists i don't say conservative i mean traditionalists that want to save this country because winter is coming unless we do something and yeah. uh we, we're going to yeah. have to do something because it's this this system is starting. What I'm getting at is when you have a commissar system that adjudicates merit on the mm-hmm. basis of ideology and you are admitted to a university or you're hired at a job or you're promoted in the Pentagon based on your stance on climate change or race or transgender, whatever it is and not merit, then it, finally it trickles down to the general society. So there is a connection between the head of American Airlines or you are, you know, weighing in on voter, uh, voter ID and the fact that the airlines don't work. Right. Or there is a connection between the universities losing students, but also graduating people who are not educated and this wokeness and the uh, loyalty oath. It's all connected. And when you get away with, you, you just do away with merit, finally you end up with excrement on the streets of your cities and signs in the cars that say there's nothing here it's on lock please don't break in and that's where we are the, the ideology we used to be a boutique academic lounge excess is now filtered down to the mainstream culture that the left runs and starting to destroy the fabric of from everything of forest fires in california from not practicing timber policy to brownouts to freeways that don't work. You let these people have their way and you're going to have a standard of living like the Soviet Union or Venezuela right. or Cuba right. or North we're, Korea. We're not exempt what, from what that. We're right. seeing in Europe what you're right. seeing in Europe right now. No, All right. Well, uh, anyway, on, without rant and happy note, let's let me just say thanks to our listeners and uh, for for those who come to uh, Apple Podcasts or iTunes, which still exists, uh, and leave ra- rankings. Uh, thank you, up to five stars. And practically everyone leaves five stars. So we appreciate uh, the fact that you appreciate what you're hearing here, Victor's Wisdom. Some people leave comments, and here's one. Uh, clarity, calmness, and empirical sanity. I truly appreciate these great pro- podcasts. I I'm soon to be 69 and grew up with a fine basic knowledge that began in elementary school where I had introduction to Latin and good classical literature. Since I began following VDH, he has taken me back to revisit some of those books. I appreciate your tone in your speech. I'm a music therapist specializing in neurology, and your clarity is so refreshing. I long for our educational system to stop and start over. We need a great model 
like VDH to be multiplied throughout our nation. Pax et bonum. This is signed by Music Nana One. Thank you, Music Nana it's One. Very nice. Amen. I appreciate yeah. that. You want to be cloned, Victor? Oh, come on. <laughs> 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 uh, I'll invest in that. Uh, thanks, Victor, again, for everything and for, for the wider range of topics we've got on this podcast. The other one we recorded earlier today and uh, the usual uh, great wisdom. Uh, thanks, my friend. Thanks all for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening, everybody.